Jamie, thank you. That is one of my all-time favorite songs. So thank you for that. That's awesome. Guys, welcome tonight. Um, you know, as we wrap up the summer, we are, does it feel like we're wrapping up summer outside? Doesn't feel like it to me. But as we are wrapping up summer, uh, we are also going to be wrapping up our time in Psalms. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 36. And um, while, you're, while you're turning to, to Psalm 36, uh, let's, uh, let's take a look at the title. It says, To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. So as you're turning there, just a couple of things about the title. In the, in the title of this psalm, we read that this psalm is a psalm of King David. He is, he's the author. Now, he doesn't disclose why he wrote this psalm like he does in a lot of the other psalms that, uh, that, that he's written. But we do see that in the title, David refers to himself as the servant of the Lord. Now, in this context, the word servant carries with it a covenant relationship emphasizing submission and service to God. So I want to I camp out here for just a minute because uh, that, word, that word servant in our, in our context can, can bring out some negative connotations. But in... In this context, um, in this circumstance, David was, he was really using it purposefully to delineate uh, the difference between his position and God's position. So, so David's use of this term is, it's, it's meant to illustrate that not only is there a relationship of submission and service to a master by a servant, but also dependence as well. And he's acknowledging that he is under the authority of God, but he is also completely dependent on God as, as well. So, you know, at, at home, we, we strive in our family, we strive to have a, uh, a nightly family worship. And we, we get together after dinner typically, and, and we'll, we'll read the Bible, we'll discuss it, and then we'll pray uh, together as a family. And yeah, I, I meant to say strive because we don't, we don't always do it, right? We, we try to do it every night, but we, we don't always do it. But when we're, when we're doing it and we're really kind of clicking along with that, we also will, will read a couple of chapters from a book on one of the heroes of the faith. And so Marianne typically does that. And when she does, she'll read, you know, again, just a couple of chapters. And, and I, I sit there just like the other kids. I sit there just like hanging on every word that, that she's reading, because first of all, the stories are incredible, but I'd like for Marion to read to me for some reason. I don't know what it is, but, but she's, uh, she's reading these books and, and, and I love it. And so my, my all-time favorite book that we've read as a family was the book on the life of George Mueller. And so George Mueller is, he was a man of great faith who trusted to provide for over 2,000 kids at a time in an orphanage in Bristol, England in the 19th century. He refused to make any of the needs known of the orphanage to, to any potential donors. Rather, he demonstrated that God hears and answers prayers when we diligently seek him by faith. He was, he was a man who found, who found joy in God when, when facing desperate circumstances while caring for the daily needs of these, of these orphans. He, he emphasized that the first order of business every day should be to secure communion with God through time and God's word and prayer. 
So in, in one of the more famous uh, George Mueller stories, um, he had 300 children at that time in the orphanage, and he, he, he had them all get ready for, for school that day and had them come to the dining hall for, for breakfast, a breakfast that did not exist yet. They had, no, they had no food, they had no money to buy food, but yet he still had all of the children get ready for school to come and sit in the, in the dining hall. And while they were seated at the table, they prayed and they thanked God for his provision. And so right after the prayer was over, there was a knock on the door. And the town's baker was at the door and he said, George, I was, I was up all night. I couldn't sleep because I knew something was telling me that these kids needed bread to eat. And so I, I got up and I baked three batches of bread for the kids. So they had bread. Short time after, there was another knock on the door and it was, it was the milkman. The milkman's cart had broken down outside of the orphanage. And he offered the milk to George and the orphans there because he knew that the, more, the milk would, would spoil if, uh, if he couldn't get it into town, which he couldn't. So he, he offered it to, to George. And it was just enough milk for the 300 thirsty children. So, you know, George Mueller, he was a, a servant of God submitting to the service of the master and depending on him daily for the needs, for his needs, but also the needs of the over 10,000 orphans who would come through his, his orphanage. His life, though, wasn't always marked by prayer and dependence on, on God. His life was actually pretty messy early on. We'll, we'll get back to that later, but uh, let's dive into and read Psalm 36. So if you have your Bible, follow along. If you don't, it's on the screen here. So Psalm 36.1, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and to do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There, are e- there, are, there the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So in, in this Psalm, David, what he's doing here is he is clearly differentiating between the wicked and those who take refuge in the Lord and how that orders our relationship with God. So if you're taking notes, the, uh, the main idea uh, today is this, the deceitfulness of sin and the delightfulness of God should cause us to seek Him. 
So once again, the deceitfulness of sin and the delightfulness of God should cause us to seek Him. So when I, when I graduated college and began my professional sales career, if, if, if you could call it that at age 22, I began this, this sales career. I was, I was told at the time, time and time again in sales training, that you should always tell people what you wanted them to know in groups of three things. If you were trying to close a deal and you had only two you know, strong points to make for your proposal, then your proposal wasn't solid enough to get the sale. But if you had four things to tell them, then for some reason, four things would totally blow people's minds and they wouldn't be able to remember a thing you said. So you should always tell people things in, in sets of three. It's called the power of three. So fortunately for us, David, King David, he also took these same sales courses and he created in this psalm three divisions of this psalm so we could remember exactly what he said. So, so here they are, three divisions of this psalm. Number one is our sin deceives us. Number two, the character of God compels us to seek him. And then number three, the servant of God desires more of him. So, Let's dive in. We're going, to go, we're going to go verse by verse here in this psalm, and uh, we'll, we'll kind of break it up into the three divisions, and we'll go through each of the verses, and, and then we'll, we'll do some application at the end, and that'll be our, that'll be our time today. So uh, division one, our, our sin deceives us. So there, there, isn't, there isn't a real consensus among theologians as to, as to whether those, these first four verses are are directed at those who just reject God outright, or if they're, if they're meant for people who, um, who know God, but just continue or struggle in their own sin. So given there's no consensus, I, I lean toward these verses being a snapshot of the fallen human heart apart from God's grace in Jesus Christ. So these verses, they unfold a progression, showing that, that sin begins in the heart, and expresses itself in, in words and deeds. So in verse 1, we see David state that there is no fear of God among the wicked. Their sin is rooted in the fact that they have no fear of God. And that makes sense, right? I mean, the, the person who doesn't fear God lives an emboldened life to do what is right in their own eyes or to whatever makes them happy or, or satisfied or brings them the most gain or gets them ahead in life. And then in verse 2, it says, for for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. So as we, as we chase after the world, our, our sin causes us to flatter ourselves so much that we can't even see our own sin in ourselves. We're blind to it. We believe man's word over God's word. We're living our own truth. We believe in equality over purity. Whatever makes me happy is good. Our sin flatters us so much that we can't see our own sin or hate it for how evil it is. We're so deluded by our own sin that we think we're right, or at least that we're no worse off than anyone else. And in essence, we've become our own God, determining right from wrong and declaring ourselves righteous. So if we believe that, then, then the, the logical result is that you know, we think that we're all going to, to heaven and there's no judgment or condemnation for, for our sin. In, in a 
2014 Pew Research uh, poll, they did this poll and they, they polled Americans who profess to be Christians. And in that poll, 66% of these Americans who profess to be Christians say that many religions can lead to eternal life. Six, let me say that again, because I read that and it kind of blew my mind. 66% of Americans who proclaim to be Christians say that, they're, say that many religions can lead to heaven. Now, it, it may not surprise you to learn that 80% of the more, the more mainline Protestants believe that, but I think what, what may kind of maybe harder to believe is that 52% of the generally more conservative evangelicals believe it. And that's, that's pretty ironic because one of, the, one of the tenets making one evangelical, someone who calls himself evangelical, one of the tenets there is a recognition of the inspired word of God as the ultimate basis and authority for faith and Christian living. Those two things don't square. So, so what does this mean? What well, means that if you believe that the way you live your life alone can get you to heaven, then you don't believe the Bible's true. Maybe not wholesale, but I, I think we've probably all done this at, at certain times in our lives where, you know, degrees of, of this, where we, you know, we, we cherry pick verses. We want to believe and then we ignore verses that, that we don't want to be true. You know, we, we read verses like everyone who calls upon under the name of the Lord will be saved. And we say, yes, that's me. And then we ignore verses like there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We look at the scripture where Jesus was asked by the Pharisees what punishment was warranted for the woman caught in adultery. And we cling to his response that he gave to the, to the Pharisees. He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And we, we read that and we say, see, Jesus is not concerned with my sin. But yet we ignore the fact that just a few short verses later, Jesus tells the woman, he tells her, now go and sin no more. There's a clear progression here in these verses. As we, as we get to verse 3, it, it says that our words are trouble and deceit, that we no longer have the ability to act wisely or do good. And maybe we think we're just kind of innocent in all this, and we're, we're not really to blame for our actions. You hear people say it all the time, this is the way God made me, or I was born this way, or whatever. And you know, in verse 4, it tells us otherwise. It says, he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. But listen to what David is saying here. He's saying we, we plot, we scheme our next move, like the next move in a game of chess. At a time where we should be innocently resting, we're scheming. These, these first four verses are, they're, they're kind of heavy. They're kind of discouraging. And if, if we stopped here, we'd be in trouble, right? But we know that, that God's promise since the beginning in Genesis 3 was that this is not where it was going to stop, right? That he was going to make things right. So we will continue there, Right? So we, we get into the second division here. The character of God compels us to seek him. And, and here, David, he turns on a dime 
And he goes from our depravity to the character of God and the blessings that, that he dis- bestows on those who, who seek him. So in verse 5, it says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. David mentions God's steadfast love three times in this psalm. Once in verse 5 here with regard to its immensity. Again in verse 7 with regard to its value. And then again in verse 10, as we'll see in verse 10, as a prayer that the Lord will continue dispensing it. This steadfast love that we read here, this steadfast love is meant to be a loyal love or a covenant love. I don't don't want to get into a Hebrew lesson, but um, the same word in Hebrew here is translated into stork, like the bird, a stork. It may seem kind of strange, but you know, we've, we've all seen storks used in, you know, new baby, newborn baby announcements, and you'll see a stork in a, in a yard with a big blanket or towel hanging from its mouth, and, you know, the impression there is, is that a, you know, a baby has been brought to the house by the stork, right? And so the, the Hebrews, they, they observed how storks loyally cared for their babies and the love that they gave them, kind of hence the that steadfast love or stork, the double meaning of the, of the Hebrew word there. This is, the, this is the love that God extends to us, the weak and the dependent. If that wasn't enough, we, we get to verse 6. It says, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgment are like the great deep, man and beast, you save, O Lord. Now, the definition of the Hebrew word here for righteousness means conformity to an ethical or moral standard. God is the standard for what is righteous, not, not us or what we think is ethical or good. He, he always wills what is right and does what is right. And David, David, he compares God's righteousness here to a mighty mountain. Have you, have you ever seen a, a mountain that you, you just you couldn't stop staring at? You know, I, I remember a couple of years ago, Marianne and I, we were, we were in Seattle and we were taking off from the Seattle airport and uh, it was kind of a cloudy day and we were, we were headed to Vancouver and, and um, as we took off and as we kind of broke through the clouds, we see this huge mountain right, extending above the clouds. It was 13,000 320-foot uh, Mount Rainier, and it was, it was incredible to see this mountain above the clouds. I'd never seen that before, and so everybody who was, everybody on our side of the plane, they were frantically pulling out their cell phones trying to get pictures of this, of Mount Rainier, and everybody on the other side of the plane was, they were just trying to get a peek of what we were, we were looking at. It was, it was absolutely incredible. So to say that his righteousness is like the mountains of God is to say his standards are so impressive and immovable because like, like the massive base of this mountain, God's righteousness stems from the foundation of his holy character. So his righteousness is like the great mountain and his judgments are like the great deep. Think about that. The deepest part of the ocean is the Mariana Trench. Deepest known part of the ocean is the Mariana Trench, which is over 36,000 feet deep. The, the depth of the Mariana Trench is 
three times the height of Mount Rainier. It's incredible to think about. And that, that's just what we know. There are likely deeper parts of the ocean that, that we don't even know about. In Job chapter 38, God is questioning Job and he, he asked Job if, if he's walked the recesses of the deep. No man has physically been to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. The pressure would, would crush him. But God implies that he's walked the depths of the ocean floor. His, his judgments are unfathomable. His ways are not our ways. No, no wonder we make our own truth. Apart from him, we would be crushed by the weight of our own depravity. We get to verse 7 and it says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So the word precious here, it, it causes a shift from this picture of the immense mountains and the, and the depths of the ocean to the intimate and personal relationship that we have with him. So when we, we consider the gravity of verses one through four and the enormity of God in, in verses five and six, how foolish would it be for us to ignore the refuge God offers under his protective wings? We get to verse 8 and it says, it says they, they feast. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. So I was, I was talking to a group from church last weekend and, and uh, we were talking about Brazilian steakhouses and the way they, they walk around, it's ridiculous, right? They walk around with these oversized skewers of meat and you just you put a card out and guy comes over and he cuts off meat on your, I mean, it's as much as you want, as my, my boys would say, meat for days. I mean, it's like, it's as much as you want. It's kind of sick. If you could get drunk on meat, then this would be the place I would imagine that, that, you, could, that you could do it. But that's what, that's what David is, is referring to here. He's saying the finest cuts, unlimited portions, as much as you can stand. And then don't miss the reference to the river here. David was, was writing as a person who lived in the desert. They understood the importance of an overflowing river, what it meant for cleansing and refreshment, what it meant for sustainability and crops. God gives an overabundance of what they needed. Verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Life here isn't just physical life, but spiritual life. This sounds a lot like John chapter 1, verse 4, which says of Jesus, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the source of eternal life. The fountain of life suggests an unending supply. He never runs dry. Not only is Jesus the fountain of life, but he's also the light that illuminates the soul. When, when we were in Greensboro, we lived in the same house for 15 years. I knew that house backward and forward. If I woke up in the middle of the night, I never had to turn on a light to navigate my way around. I could, I could walk up and down the stairs at night and never have to turn on a light as I was, as I was doing that or anything in the, in the dark. I knew my house. 
That's not the case right now. After being in Florida for in a new house for the past couple of months, I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm lost in my own house. I walk, even in the daytime, I push light switches in our house and I, they, I can't figure out what they do. I swear there are light switches in our house that do nothing at all. I'm, I am lost in our own house at night. Like me in, in my new house at night, we're spiritually blind. We walk around aimlessly turning on light switches, turning on switches, thinking that they'll help us find our way, but we're destined to stub our toe, hit our knee into, the, into that part of the bed of the corner that you can't take too, too tight when you walk around it. But guys, this is, it's, it's more than that. Without, without the light of Christ, we're headed for, for worse than temporary pain. We're headed for an eternal death. So in the, in the first four verses of this, of this psalm, David, he, he shows us that we're deceived by our own sin and that, and that we still pursue it. Then he abruptly contrasts uh, to the immense delightfulness of God to, to make us want to seek Him as the source for every blessing. And then in these last division, David finally, he shows us that the servant of God desires more of Him. We get to verses 10 through 12, it says, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. In verse 10, David's prayer is for those who know God already. And, and David, David definitely knew God. And he's, in essence, begging God to continue in their relationship those who have who've ex- experienced the presence of God in their life, they crave more and more of Him. When we, we didn't do this for this reason at home, but years ago, we, we started taking Juice Plus, and my wife doesn't sell Juice Plus or anything. That's not why I'm bringing it up. But we started, we started taking Juice Plus as a family, and it's, you know, if you don't know it, it's a, you know, one pill is for fruits and the other pill is for vegetables. And if you don't get enough fruits and vegetables, you take the pills and you got more than you need for the day. And we started noticing that our kids who generally didn't go for the vegetables at dinner time, after they started taking the Juice Plus, they started reaching for the vegetables first at the dinner table. And so we, we started, you know, we, we put it back to, wow, this Juice Plus, it actually kind of works. And so we, we knew that the kids, the, the more they got of it, the more they craved it. Now, that, that's, a, that's kind of a lame example for how we would crave God more and more by, by uh, you know, just experiencing him. But let me give you a better example. How about Moses? So Moses, pretty great example of this, right? So Moses experienced an intimate relationship with God time and time again. He was the one who would, who would go into the tent of meeting and meet with God on behalf of the people of Israel. Exodus 33, 11 says, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face 
as a man speaks to a friend. Imagine that kind of relationship with God. That, that same chapter, Exodus 33, is where God, he, he commands the, the people of Israel to leave Mount Sinai and head to the promised land. So here's what it says, beginning in verse 1 of 33. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom, have, whom you have brought up out of the land of, of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, Hiv- the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a, to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, this was, this was disastrous for, for Moses and the people. And you just read it, and you think, that's not so bad. They're, they're going to the land that God promised them. But did you catch it? God was saying, I will not go with you. I'll send an angel to lead you there, but I'm not going. And in essence, God is saying, I'm done with these people. I've done so much for them. And, and all they do is complain. They make false gods to worship. I'm still going to give you the land that I promised, but I'm not leading you there like I have been. I'm done. I'll send an angel, but I'm not going. And this was, this was a huge deal, right? Because, because in the desert, they would have the tent of meeting and, and God would lead them as the, as the pillar of cloud and you know, fire by night would, would, would move. The, the people would get up and they would move. And God was leading them where he wanted them to go. And so, and so now at, at this point, at this critical point, God is saying, I'm done. I'm not going. Moses, go ahead. I'm a, I, you know, I am God. I've, my, my word is golden. I've told you that you can have the land. And so I'm still going to give it to you. I'm not going with you, however. And so Moses, when God says this to him, he, he intercedes for the people because he knows how much they need God. So later in the, in the chapter, It says, Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I've found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And so God says to to Moses, he says, my presence will go with you. And that, that you there is singular. My presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you, Moses, rest. And so Moses then says to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us, Israel, up from here. So Moses is saying, God is, first of all, God is telling Moses, Moses, I'll go with you. I'm not going to go with the people, but I'll go with you. And Moses says, God, if you're not going to go with us, you know, what's the point? What's the point? And so it says, Moses says, for, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing 
that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses says, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Moses knew what it was like to be in the presence of God. He knew, he knew what it was like to have communion with God, and he couldn't imagine going forward without it. When someone experiences the power of the presence of God in their life, they have an insatiable desire for it. They crave more of it. So now back to George Mueller. So as I said before, George, George Mueller, was, he was not always a person of such great faith and good character. As, as a young boy growing up in, in Germany in the early 1800s, he, he often stole money from his father as a, as a teenager. Um, he sneaked out of a hotel twice without paying for the room. One time he, he got caught, he got put in jail. He was a, he was a drunk. He, was, he loved being the life of the party. He loved making fun of people, especially Christians. So one day, a friend invited George to go to an off-campus Bible study when he was at university. He invites him to go to this off-campus Bible study. And George went only because he wanted to be able to go there and make fun of the Christians and just you know, mock what, what, they were, what they were doing. But to his surprise, he actually liked it. He liked the Bible study. For the first time, he saw people who who really knew and loved God. He went every night to the Bible study at the camp. And before the end of the week, he got down on his knees at his bed and he prayed for God to forgive his sins. George's friends, they they saw a change in him immediately. He no longer went to bars or made fun of people. He, He spent more time reading his Bible, talking about God and going to church. He actually found that, uh, I think this probably happened to a number of people in this room, but he found that his friends, they didn't really want to be his friends anymore. He got new friends inside the, inside the church. It caused trouble for George at home as well, because when he told his father that, that he had decided to become a missionary, his father got really upset. He wanted George to, to study and to get a high-paying job and to not be a a poor missionary. He told George that he wouldn't give him any any more money for school. George knew he had to do what God was calling him to do, even if his dad did not support him. So George went back to university not knowing how he was going to pay his tuition. He did something that he thought was absolutely ridiculous. He got down on his, on his knees, and he asked God to just provide. An hour later, his professor, it's like you know where this is going already, right? I mean, you hear these George Mueller stories, you just, you know where it's going, right? And you get, kind of get excited to, to hear the rest of it. And an hour later, his professor knocks on the door, and he offers George a paid tutoring job that will cover his tuition at school. George was amazed. 
this was, this was the beginning of George Mueller's dependence on God. He became a servant of God and, and totally depended on God to provide for his every need that, that he had. He prayed about every need that he had. He also prayed for his, his friends who, who didn't know God. He prayed for them to be saved. And he specifically, he had five friends who were unbelievers, who weren't Christian. And he prayed for these five pr- friends every day of his life. When George Mueller died, three of those five friends had turned their lives over to Christ. Soon after his death, the final two became believers as well. It, if, you're, if you're a Christian, who are you praying for today? Are we praying like George Mueller prayed? And if you're, if you're not a Christian, you're here today, who's praying for you to know God? I mean, the very fact that, that you're here today means somebody loves you and is praying for you. Harsh reality is we are the ones that Paul referred to in Ephesians 2. We are dead following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, not God. That's, that's pretty tough. But I mean, if, if, if we're going to be real, then we have to face reality, right? In our, in our flesh, we want no part of holiness. We want no part of God. In that same text in Ephesians chapter 2, the, the greatest two the greatest two words in Ephesians 2, and quite possibly the greatest two words in the entire Bible, are in that chapter. They are, but God. These are, see, these are transitional words. They go from the, the first three verses of that chapter of Ephesians chapter 2, talking about how we are dead in our sin, how we are following Satan. And then they say, but God. These transitional, these transitional words. They take us from our sinful state in those first few verses, and they they make a declaration of what God has done for us to change our standing with Him. We were a people with no hope, but God, here it is, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that, one, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. God did this by fulfilling a promise to send Jesus to this earth. That promise, again, that that was made in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 15. Read it later. This promise to make things right. When sin had entered the world, God immediately promised 
a resolution to that. And that, that resolution is, is Jesus coming to this earth. He, he came to this earth to, to live a sinless life, a life that, that we could never live. He went to the cross to die a brutal death, the most horrific death that you could die in that day. He went to the cross and he died that, that, that death. He took the punishment that was due us on himself so that we could have this relationship with God that Moses experienced and craved for himself and for the people. So my, my simple but I think eternally critical question for you today is, do you know him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are holy and mighty and good. And Lord, we are not. We desperately need you. Lord, we need to recognize and understand where we are short. And Lord, how we have, our sin has deceived us. And Lord, how you made a way for us. Lord, you made a way of salvation so that we could have communion and a relationship with you, Lord, that would grow and where we would then crave more and more of you each and every day. Lord, I pray, God, that each person in this room would understand that. Lord, that we would love you with the love that you have shown us today. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.